Welcome everybody to LexLine, brought to you by yours truly, Carlo, and Jenko, who is unable to join us today. We bring it in conjunction with our friends at Rug Radio, where we discuss new and latest emerging developments in Web3, blockchain, and sometimes NFT and crypto law. Of course, nothing we say should ever be considered legal or financial advice. If you have a specific legal question, you should talk to a lawyer. You should do it privately, not on a recorded Twitter space, because we do record these and we rebroadcast them. And you can check in with us on iTunes podcast or Spotify if you want to catch up on any back episodes of LexLine. E, I brought you up to talk today. Uh, thanks for taking the bait. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on. And one of the legal developments this week is the first filing of the interim report in the FTX bankruptcy case. John Ray, who we previously talked about, who is overseeing that bankruptcy proceeding, <clears throat> filed an interim report. I put a tweet thread, or actually long form tweet in the nest, breaking it down. Essentially, the, the report emphasizes, and this probably isn't any surprise considering what we've seen in the previous disclosures, that there has been an extensive commingling of assets alleged to have occurred, which has made it difficult for the <clears throat> debtors to locate and track assets. The interim report, quote, reports, this first interim report provides a high-level overview of certain of the FTX group's control failures in the areas of management and governance, finance and accounting, and digital asset management, information, security, and cybersecurity. The report does not address all control failures in these or other areas, the debtors continue to learn new information daily as their work progresses and expect to report additional findings in due course. Welcome, Johnny. Welcome, Wendy. Welcome, NFT Fungible Esquire. Thank you for joining today. Rich, what do you think about this development? Have you had a chance to look at it? Sorry, I was trying to get back to my... My mic to unmute. Um, I've I've read your long form tweet, um, and that was the actually I was reading that when when I um, saw that you were, had started the show. And the one thing I find interesting, and this is just you know from your summary, so I, I haven't actually read the the report itself. But um, this did we know about a potential cyber attack um, before? Where is that? Did we know about it before this report right, dropped? Right. I don't know. That's a good question. Because that's that um, would, I can see how they had if they if this, if this is true if they had this massive cyber attack, you know, trying to cover losses and that might have resulted in the types of like the risky behavior that that he was behaving in um, as an as, as ah as an attempt to cover that that loss without you know letting people know basically. I wonder if this ties back to the allegations, I think, that dropped even before SBF was arrested and the criminal indictment dropped, that there was a massive cyber attack. This was reported, if I don't, uh, if my memory serves me, this was reported out of the Bahamas. I'm wondering if this relates to that, but I can't tell from reading this report because it doesn't really offer any context other than to say on page two, this challenge was magnified by the fact that the debtors took over amidst a massive cyber attack. <clears throat> so that suggests that they, they took over as this was, I guess, being unpacked, quote, itself a product of the FTX group's lack of controls that drained approximately $432 million worth of assets on the date of the bankruptcy petition. So there you go, Rich. Uh, this is cited in the November 20, it's cited in this as the November 22 breach. And it goes on to state that it, quote, threatened far larger losses, absent measures the debtors immediately implemented to secure the computing environment. That has really not been talked about very much. And that's an outstanding observation, Rich. Um, that's a big deal. 
Yeah, I don't have much further commentary on it because, I mean, I'm just trying to... FTX was such a... You know, it's been silent for so long, so I'm kind of just trying to, to digest this. But, um, yeah. Brought up a new speaker to the house. <clears throat> Trader Vic 21, welcome. Any thoughts on this recent disclosure? And I'm going to bring Johnny up, who always uh, adds some great insights. Thank you for joining, Johnny. I haven't really researched uh, the disclosure yet, so... I'll just be a listener, but um, nothing shocks me. Yeah, in this case, especially nothing shocks. I'm looking back at a Coinbase article that was uh, published back in November. And uh, it's the headline on that was FTX has been hacked. Crypto disaster worsens as exchange sees mysterious outflows exceeding 600 million. This was reported uh, November 11th and updated November 14th by Coinbase. And it does tie back because it talks about um, the, the bankruptcy filing in that. So I wonder if that has to do with that particular hack. Um, I will say this. The report talks about a lot of alleged lax security protocols when it, come, when it came to protecting uh, keys and security protocols, including one mentioned that some keys were left on a document um, in a computer drive, which is a no-no if you know anything about our world. So interesting. Thank you for joining us as a listener. I appreciate it. And uh, Johnny, thank you for joining us as well. How are you? Johnny might be a little slow coming up. Hey, there he goes. Hey, uh, yeah, thanks for having me up. So I don't know if you discussed this, but he also was paying off the local officials right after the bankruptcy. Um, if you remember, he was saying I needed to pay off. Um, he even said, like, yeah, when you're living in a country, you need to you need to keep people happy. So I had to create um, opportunities for the locals to withdraw their funds, and I believe this was after they declared bankruptcy. Um, is that mentioned at all in this report? I will skim the document. I'm going to tie back to the point that I just made just because it's front and center right now and I see it. But according to the report, um, part of the concerns, and this is noted on page 24 of the report, um, the business private keys were held, according to the report, they stored private keys to its crypto assets in its cloud computing environment, which, which included over 1,000 servers and related system architecture services and, database, and databases that at least from Amazon Web Services. So they had keys in the cloud in Amazon's infrastructure and I guess their, their server farm. Um, FTX failed. This is a quote. The FTX group failed to implement basic widely accepted security controls to protect crypto assets. Each failure was egregious in the context of a business entrusted with customer transactions. And in any one of the controls may have prevented the loss in the November 2022 breach. Taken together, the failures were further magnified such each control failure exacerbated the risk posed by the others. Uh, I will check and I'll see if I can skim the report to, to find any detail. I got a hand up in the house. So I think that prompted Trader Vic to come back up. What are your thoughts, Trader Vic? Um, so I can't speak too much about this because I don't know what's private and what's public. But um, I will tell you that given these recent, um, let's call them negligent cyber leaks, and I'm really speaking to some of the intelligence leaks that just occurred across uh, U.S. Uh, intelligence agencies. And then obviously um, what I'll call public sector leaks like this. Um, what I do want to impress and impart upon you, not impress, but impart, is um, there's been a massive movement towards, and this is interesting, creating new frameworks that uh, so I'm talking about software frameworks that deal specifically with 
uh, and I don't even want to, I don't want to even give the code word, but uh, this sort of flawed slash leaked slash negligent behavior. So, you know, just listening to what you said, I mean, it's fucking outrageous that you would put your your keys in the Amazon cloud. And what I want to just tell you is that there are new languages that are already being created and, and marked up and 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 devised and 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 worked on frameworks for, you know, for software parlance that are addressing these sorts of just holier, holy shit, fucking amazing. Like, like, how the fuck would you put public keys to your whole book in the Amazon cloud? So my point is, is that shit like this is not going to happen anymore. Um because this is now being addressed, but it's, it's actually, it's kind of too late because a lot of our intelligence was leaked. Um, and, you know, and, and then in public sector shit like this happens. Now for me, I'm a mission critical guy uh, involved in, in, in Homeland defense. So I'm, I don't really care about SBF, you know, being a fucking idiot. I do care about our intelligence, you know, our, our officers ab- abroad being leaked, uh, probably dying. Um, Cause that's, that's life and death. You know, SBF just being a moron is just SBF being a moron. So, but what I ju- what I did want to say is that these kinds of uh, failures are are rapidly being met, and thankfully with some AI um, to really expedite and speed us up, get us up to pace to where we need to be, so that we don't have these kind of um, these kind of just terrible, you know, from from a, from a military and from a law enforcement standpoint, these terrible leaks. From a pr- public sector standpoint, whatever, you know, it's fake money. Yes. No, no. Look, I appreciate your comments. Uh, I know that Mario's been doing pretty deep dive on the on this breach of documents, and he's got a lot of big brains up on the panel. So I'll leave it to them to unpack the implications of this. But I agree with you; it it, it is a problem that needs a solution. I'm going to key in on another section of the report, which really illustrates some of the concerns that the report found, including the debtors identified private keys to over 100 million dollars in Ethereum assets stored in plain text and without encryption on an FTX group server. They identified private keys as well as credentials to third-party exchanges that enabled access to tens of millions of dollars in crypto assets that were stored in plain text and without encryption across multiple servers from which they could be assessed, accessed, I should say, by many other servers and users. And, you know, coming from the perspective of the debate about centralized versus decentralized wallets. And one of the big advantages that's always been touted about going through a centralized wallet provider is that you would have an extra layer of encryption and security because these companies have massive amounts of uh, infrastructure and, and revenue generation at their disposal to implement the latest in safety protocols to ensure that these breaches don't happen, as opposed to the decentralized side of the coin, where individuals have to protect their own keys and don't always have these sophisticated countermeasures in place. So this is uh, an interesting uh, and kind of staggering uh, disclosure from this report. Circling back to Johnny's point, I don't see mention in here about the Bahamas to the degree that you're suggesting, Johnny. I don't know. Um, I, I can't recall him making those comments, but if he did, that's that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting way of looking at how to do business, to say the least. You had another question, um, Vic. Talk to us. I had another statement, uh, just to open your eyes to um, to a bigger picture here, and I won't I won't <laughs> I'll I'll beat around the bush, but there's a certain electronic auto manufacturer who uh, apparently and hypothetically and allegedly and supposedly has a very lax uh, firewall uh, to hit to the entry of his, and I said his, uh, car business. Now, I'm in the business of looking for threats, and I hate even saying this on a recorded line, but you need to put a moat around your business if you're involved in shit like this, number one. And number two, my my statement to you, Carlo, was unfortunately, crypto and decentral DeFi is like the Wild West. And obviously, one of the things we see here is just negligence out of pure um, kind of ignorance to the to the frontier, so to speak, meaning they were running so fast 
I mean, some of the shit you're saying is just atrocious. I mean, how could you have a public key in a, you know, plain text file? But they were running so fast because the speed of, you know, the speed of, of, of the business was such that they just didn't have time to, you know, dot their I's and cross their T's. So, I mean, I made two points there. The, the second point parlays to the first point in that, you know, I understand that it's essential to get, you know, OTA updates done and everything and, you know, access to all vehicles. But you need to look at the flip side to that coin. Um, the flip side to that coin is if your architecture and if your if your OTAs are open air and and kind of hackable, well, you need to look at the downside of that being hacked and, you know, just consider, you know, any auto manufacturers, uh, let's say million cars uh, being able to be uh, hacked into the OBD, the car basically brain and just with one line of code set off a number of things that are just would be basically the largest terrorist attack in the history of the world. I'll leave it at that. That's crazy stuff. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your insights. That's, that's, that's why I take Xanax. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. That's what keeps me up at night and doesn't allow me to go to sleep. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And uh, once you go down that rabbit hole, I'm sure it's very, very, very concerning. Well, we have a old friend in the house, Ruben. Ruben, I'm going to bring you up. And uh, I'm sure you've got some thoughts on this as well. Again, I'm not really gearing this talk towards security breach and national uh, and national security data breaches because I think that's a conversation for a space that's much more uh, nuanced and has a panel of speakers that are more interested in having that conversation. I'd like to keep the talk here mostly on legal developments. So, Ruben, we're talking about the FTX group uh, interim report that was just released, and it accounts some alarming security breaches and the way they were storing private keys. And what are your thoughts on all of this, Ruben? Let me process for a second. Uh, I'm not a big fan. Uh, the whole FDX thing. Uh, back in 2010, somewhere between 2010 and 2013, um, when Mt. Gox hit, uh, which at the time was processing 40% of all Bitcoin transactions and Bitcoin was the only blockchain at the time. Uh, this, this phrase, not your keys, not your wallet, started circling around. Um, and this time, uh, you know, the, the, the custodial uh, infrastructure has matured, shall we say. Um, and we're, it seems like we're learning the same lessons, right? It makes me wonder... How many of the folks that got punched in the face by Mt. Gox also got punched in the face by other sort of more modern uh, custodial change uh, hacks or uh, malfeasance? My guess is uh, significantly less as a proportion than the newbies, right? Um, a good friend of mine, uh, Cade Mayfield, once said, Ruben, sometimes the best lifeguard is bodies in the water. Which is kind of a cold thing to say, uh, but I suspect just the same way as technological developments, um, you know, have sort of abstracted away the complexity of security protocols, you know, multi-factor authentication, whether that's multiple device or multiple handles, etc., um, has sort of made th things easier. Uh, I suspect that we'll see um, equivalent tooling, um, hopefully in a more sort of whilst retaining the sovereignty rather than sort of delegating that to third parties who. In many cases, certainly this one um, illustrates that they can't be trusted, right? Yeah, thank you, Ruben. To circle back, Rich, I found I found a little more insight in the report as to the timing of this breach. Um, I'm referring to page 34. Quote, in fact, due to the lack of such controls, the FTX group did not learn of the November 2022 breach until... The debtor's restructuring advisor alerted employees after observing via Twitter and other public sources that suspicious transfers appeared to have occurred from FTX group crypto wallets. Again, this is incredible. It seems to tie into the fact that there was no process in place for people within FTX's group to become aware of these uh, wallet compromises, 
to detect and respond to these security threats in a timely fashion. So this was all swirling around in November and largely going undetected. But this is, Johnny, they're already, yeah, they're Rich, already in bankruptcy at that point, right? I believe so. I think because the debtors are the ones who, but based on this report, it seems like the debtors found the breach. So my question would be when, I mean, when did they go into, they went in like, what was that, August or September or October? I don't know. Um, it was the summer. Anyway, I feel like that that's something they should have been able to prevent as the, I, I don't know. Sorry, I'm, I'm processing, but. I think I think everyone is in the space. Um, so, what's the expression? Looking, uh, move fast and break things. Yeah, and look, uh, that that's kind of the uh, that's kind of the the, the tech defense <laughs> when things are evolving very quickly and there are compromises and there are failures. Um, I think it was November 11th that the bankruptcy was filed. Uh, According to New York Times, I'm seeing reporting. I think it was November 11th that they filed, Rich. So not too far after the bankruptcy filing, it looks like the the debtors were able to locate this breach, which seems to have just been going on undetected. Yeah, I'm confusing the Celsius events with the FTX events as far as like the, the spring and summer and winter I was like I was relating it to like a, a, a season and I thought it was the summer so okay that makes more sense and just sort of to tie it in, con- in context I think one of the more inflammatory uh, statements that came out of this report is on page three it's been shared a lot on social quote despite the public image it sought to create of a responsible business the FTX group was tightly controlled by a small group of individuals who showed little interest in instituting an appropriate oversight or control framework. These individuals stifled dissent, commingled and misused corporate and customer funds, lied to third parties and their businesses, joked internally about their tendency to lose track of millions of dollars in assets and thereby caused the FTX group to collapse as swiftly as it had grown. Um, I don't think you can underscore the the seriousness of that allegation, but it's there. Um, Nick, comments? Yeah, qu- question, Carlo. How long is this paper? Uh, this particular report, and I have a link to it up in the nest in the uh, in the thread that I posted, is a forty three page report. So listen to this. Just imagine if if they issued a forty three page white paper addressing all the ways that they should be locking up their keys, this would have never happened. Imagine that. The report is longer than the fucking crime. Yeah, you know, that's unfortunate. Um, Johnny, you got a hand up. Ruben, next. But it is unfortunate because you're right. Um, People, I think, operated under the belief that there were those internal protocols in place. Uh, At least forward-facing, the company seemed to give assurances to people that their, their, their crypto would be secure. And that's, as I talked about, one of the reasons why people are drawn to these centralized exchanges, because they do they do have the infrastructure to 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 implement those uh, protective measures. What do you think, Johnny? Uh, a couple of things. So. First of all, uh, the report mentions, I'm just giving it now that um, they did interviews with some of the employees, but that was kind of frustrated by the ongoing criminal proceedings. Uh, I saw that as well. What's the timeline on them? You know, what's the timeline on the whole criminal side of things? You probably have a better insight into that than anyone. Generally, the rule of thumb when it comes to federal criminal prosecution is a five-year statute of limitations. It can be extended under certain fraud schemes. But I think given how fast moving this case is, if there are going to be other targets that are going to be charged, I think they would probably come well within that five-year statute of limitations period, just based upon how aggressive and fast-moving the Southern District of New York has been. I also saw that um, mentioned in the report, and that sort of reinforces the fact that there are other people that are within the universe of this company who are coming forward. Uh, I'll, I'll sort of tie back to the press release that was done when the DOJ announced the indictment in the FTX case, 
they strongly urged people who had information to come to them before the DOJ had to go to uh, find them and to cooperate immediately. So I don't know if that motivated this desire to come forward. And you're right, when it comes to the defendants who are already criminally charged, it does frustrate the bankruptcy debtor's ability to get information from those individuals because their attorneys most likely are implementing or, or invoking, I should say, Fifth Amendment privileges. What are your thoughts, Ruben? So there's an addenda to that uh, expression of move fast and break things. And I learned it in a fintech conference. Um, some fancy VC was up on stage and said, yeah, move fast and break things unless you're dealing with law or money. In that case, move methodically and work with the regulators. Um, it makes me wonder what happens next to these founders? To what extent is there accountability? If there is no accountability, um, do we sort of propagate the the sort of theme of calculated corporate non-compliance that we see in a lot of class action contexts. Um, it makes me wonder what happens to counsel. Where was counsel in this conversation, by the way? And, you know, have you seen, have you seen um, corp counsel at these kinds of uh, organizations feel the effect on, on the career? afterwards reputationally or is that more of a misnomer and i and i ask because i remember seeing a defense counsel for a resort marketing group which is um the uh top three um cruise companies in a tcpa case they made um phone calls six to twenty phone calls in violation of tcpa statutory damages five to fifteen hundred per per unsolicited communication multiplied by oh um, 11% of U.S. phone numbers, and the U.S. has 600 million phone numbers. So uh, whatever that is multiplied by, you know, 11%, right? Uh, like, like multiple uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in statutory damages uh, that they ultimately uh, settled for something like 13 million or something ridiculous. Um, do you see material impacts, um, either for these specific individuals here or for, um, you know, the, the role of counsel or do you think that's like, like if you were to sort of speculate as to what happens next there? I think uh, there is a concern because we've talked about it in previous spaces and our good friend Ira has actually brought up the, the issue of what did counsel know and when and how was counsel advising and was counsel sounding alarm bells when there were certain things going on within the company Um it is plausible and it is certainly within the realm of possibility that in a massive uh, fraud investigation like this, that counsel's behavior and counsel's advice will be scrutinized to the extent that privilege can be uh, waived or pierced to look at what counsel was advising. Right. And it's, it's certainly uh, exacerbated if there is any indication that counsel may have been complicit. I'm not making allegations here. I'm just talking generally about how it works. But one of the ways that you can pierce the attorney-client privilege uh, and get access to those documents is if you can make a case that counsel in any investigation was uh, complicit in, yeah. in perpetrating the fraud. So I'm not sure if the investigators are looking in that direction. I would imagine that in any massive fraud case like this, especially one that touches on very complex, nuanced legal issues that are still being sorted out by attorneys in this space, uh, there's always the risk that uh, improper advice could lead to malfeasance. And uh, that's certainly something that lawyers need to be mindful of in this space as they embark on advising clients in this space because uh, it can fall back and some defendants have used that legal advice, not only as a shield to protect the information that they receive from counsel, but also as a sword that they've wielded by alleging the advice of counsel defense. And, and the advice of, I'm sorry? Malpractice? Like go, well, go for the insurance? I'm sure malpractice, you know, but it would be difficult, I think, if you've got unclean hands in the fraud and if you are, you know, sort of driving the fraudulent conduct to make that claim. But there could be uh, the debtors, I, I think, maybe could explore 
you know, what type of malfeasance and malpractice might have contributed. But I'm speaking more to when a defendant in a criminal case is going to allege the defense that they relied on the advice of counsel in making the decisions they made. And in that instance, when they raise that defense, they've got to breach attorney-client privilege in order to put forth that defense. So it's complicated because if there are damning communications where counsel is screaming in emails with all caps, you know, don't do this, and client right. is ignoring that advice and, and trudging forward, that, that can backfire very badly. So yeah, to, to circle back and answer your, your broad question, I think that's certainly something in any collapse like this that they'd be looking at. Hmm. You think the uh, you think the uh, the malpractice and insurance premiums might bump up a little bit? Well, in an area of law like this, where it's uh, more questions than answers, I imagine there's probably a higher uh, liability. Johnny, you got a hand they're, up? They're, they're not going to bump up. They're they're going to they're going to fail to cover. So they're not even going to write. Yeah. Them. Yeah. Explain yeah. how they would fail to cover, in your opinion. Curious. They just won't underwrite it. I mean, the risk is the risk is not. Uh, they're not able to calculate the risk. So when you can't calculate risk, you just you can't write. They're just not gonna. They're not gonna provide further coverage. It's a, it's an uninsurable risk, and they just nobody insures an unsure an uninsurable risk unless they're Warren Buffett or they like going bankrupt. So, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to go down an insurance rabbit hole, but that's generally what happens. Yeah. I mean, look, I could see an issue where it would be liability on the books um, to, to cover uh, to cover legal counsel that are advising in these particular uh, sectors of the crypto space. But I think at the end of the day, there's probably always going to be at least one insurance company that may be willing to take that on if the premium Warren, is Warren right. Buffett. Warren Buffett. <laughs> or in Buffett, right? So that's an interesting observation. You know, it's a little bit of a slow day in the news, and of course, everyone is away at NFT NYC. Uh, I should say, at least I'm not away at NFT NYC. Is anyone in this space at NFT NYC? Anything good to report? Seeing no hands. Rich is not uh, is not attending. I I skipped. Uh, this year had to just too many professional commitments, but uh, I'm curious to see how things are going in New York. Um, and Jingo, I think it definitely is, is going to be there. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think Jenko does conferences. <laughs> I don't think that's why he's absent today. Just checking if it was like a travel day. So, I mean, it'd be nice to, if we could maybe pull in um, some of the, the people that we know are going, Pablo, to get like a report from on the ground in, in NFT NYC. But yeah. Yeah, you know, that's the hard part. Having been there and experienced the full court press, um, it's hard to do that. You're running around the city. Um, it's amazing how fast your battery drains when you're running around New York City, twice as fast as anywhere else in the world, I think. And you just are inundated with opportunities to meet and talk to new people. So I fully anticipated the, the phone, that this was going to be a short battery. space. The phone battery too, Carlo. Yeah, <laughs> the phone battery too. Exactly. Well said. Well said. Um, so I kind of anticipated this space was going to be more on the quiet side as far as Web3 lawyers jumping in. So I am grateful that we had a few in the house. Johnny, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I got a question. So the depositors um, for FTX, there was a question of, uh, custody. Um, does this report, I know it's maybe not getting into the weeds of, or maybe this question's already been answered. Are the depositors funds, um, are they entitled to those funds? Or are they in the pool for the priority of debtors or, or creditors? Does that make sense? Um, because they Good were question. sold, they were, so they were told the depositors were all told that they, you know, they weren't playing with their money. It was essentially they're just take, you know, taking custody for them. Um, and there was a question early on during the bankruptcy process as to um, individuals who still you know, had funds in FTX, were they going to be considered um, debtors to get in line 
or were they entitled to get back their funds immediately um, because they were theirs? Um, whether they went to the big pool to be divvied up or if they were entitled to them because they signed, they signed up for FTX to just hold them, not to lend them. Has there That's been an outstanding theory? question. That's an outstanding question. I, I wish I had a clearer answer to it because I'm not a bankruptcy lawyer. I know what you're getting at, Johnny, because generally in these situations, um, consumers are, are usually treated as um, simple, simple unsecured creditors and are at the back of the line. Whether anything about the actual agreement that they entered into with FTX as far as holding their funds might improve their position as far as getting closer to the front of the line for disbursement is something I don't have a lot of clarity on. I don't know if that's been fully litigated yet and how a bankruptcy judge would interpret that. Um, I don't know if it's that far along yet that they can make that call as they're still trying to secure and lock up assets. I do think they've repaid some people, if I'm not mistaken. Ruben, anything to add on this that you that you are aware of? I was going to take it in a new direction. Okay. Rule 23. Uh, class certification law, right? Um, it seems to me, um, is anybody familiar with Mel Weiss? He was the guy who started the um, securities uh, laws, uh, securities litigation back in the day um, and, until he got until he got uh, slapped for uh, paying off uh, representative plaintiffs uh, later on. Um, but the the key thing that he sort of snagged onto was the structure of rule 23 where there is a common injury to um, multiple individuals uh, particularly if the damages are similar um, you know you can get uh, as Arthur Miller would say more judicial bang for the judicial book uh, by trying it as a class action right through class cert it seems to me uh, for the same reasons that uh, crypto um, has issues around the Howey test um, and securities laws that similar structures might be used to uh, streamline class action litigation um, on the plaintiff side. Have, has anybody here sort of seen movement in that direction, either uh, technologically to sort of um, wield the, the ledger? as a mechanism to, you know, notify potential class members or pursue uh, sort of certification or, you know, whether it's sort of procedurally or technologically. Is, have you seen any movement in that area? It seems like fertile soil for, for movement. Yeah, you know, we've seen our fair share of class actions pop up in the space, and you're right to point to Rule 23. Not a class action lawyer, but I do understand the general contours of it that you've got to have a common injury or harm that you can attribute to the class of 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 defendants uh, for causing that harm and that can unify the plaintiffs in in their cause of action as a single proceeding so yes there's definitely a requirement of that and there is a layer of difficulty in accumulating class action plaintiffs when you're talking about blockchains and you're talking about pseudonymous and often anonymous players. Communicating to them and reaching them through wallets is a challenge. I think that's probably going to get easier as we start to see, um, in my opinion at least, I think as we start to see ENS domains become more of a communication protocol yeah. that you can actually talk wallet to wallet without having to airdrop spam that people will never open and without having to worry about getting you know, hacked per se. So I don't know how, but I suspect since we're now seeing courts approve service on people in DAOs by way of uh, you know, very, very yeah. interesting yeah, and, and liberal ap approaches to how to serve people, I would imagine that the notification requirements might need to get amended somehow to account for, for blockchain users. Um, Vic, you have a hand up. Any thoughts on this particular nuance no i was just wondering was that death of a salesman arthur miller or, or what arthur miller was that um arthur miller um new york school of law uh he's man he must be pushing 
must be pushing his 80s now, but he was the, the only surviving member from the creation of Rule 23, uh, which brought us things like um, Brown versus Board of Education and, you know, the, uh, the movie with What's-Her-Face. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's it's, it's, it's an Julia Roberts. That's the one. Yeah, um, yeah. There, there's the the. It, it's it's had a weird history because it's like this. You know, it's justice where otherwise there might be none. But you know, the European courts would call it um, the wholesale of human rights. So it depends on how you look at it, right? Uh, there's principal agent issues sort of across the board, but. Um, some of those principal agent issues lie with the settlement administrators who are often sort of motivated to um, do it the most expensive way possible because they're, it's a cost plus model. This is why you're getting postcards instead of push notifications in large part. Um, but it, it seems like a lot of that could be streamlined, um, not only in terms of discovery of the class itself, but also serving the class, um, you know, the management of process or reducing due process. Um, Enhancing due process and reducing the individual burden. Um, it, it just seems like a. It seems like what could have hap- what happened to securities laws, uh, securities litigation could happen to um, litigation in this context because the, the underlying mechanics are look very similar. You know. Yeah, it's an interesting observation, and you brought up Arthur Miller. So, Rich, I think you're kind of from my generation of lawyers. I'm sure you remember listening to the Arthur Miller civil procedure tapes in preparation oh, yeah. for law school. Johnny, I'm curious, is Arthur Miller still in the uh, lineup of speakers that young lawyers are listening to when it comes to civ pro knowledge? You know, it's not ringing any bells. I was thinking death and a salesman. That is so funny. Rich, are you going to back me up on this? Did you listen to Arthur Miller tapes or am I the dinosaur in the space? Dinosaurs being nice. I, I was thinking more like uh, something else. No, I'm, I'm joking, Carlo. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting. Look, um, I think we're going to see an evolution in how class actions are approached, just like we're going to see an evolution in every aspect of, of, of yeah. the legal profession. Blockchain is disrupting so many facets of the global economy. And of course, AI is going to accelerate all of the developments that are coming by way of blockchain and dApps and so forth. I think we're going to see um, a lot of consolidation of work and a lot of acceleration of work product, which is probably going to contribute to more litigation, more sophisticated litigation, more targeted and more surgical litigation, and more sophisticated document review to process and to unpack yeah. Uh, because one of the things that's difficult and challenging right now when it comes to bringing these cases is unraveling the blockchain transactions. Um, I was thinking about this just yesterday, as a matter of fact, that I think that we're probably going to see uh, the Department of Justice and the IRS to some extent leverage AI as an investigative tool to accelerate their ability to comb through records, yeah, uh, blockchains, and complex financial transactions in order to discover, uh, you know, potential fraudulent behavior. Um, I'm not sure how far along they are with that, but I'm sure that that is definitely because in my experience in being a criminal defense lawyer, I know that the government will often go into the private sector and leverage expertise and innovation from the private sector to increase their ability to enforce and regulate and prosecute crimes. So I can't see that to being too far off the field, assuming, of course, just as we need to be cautious in the legal profession, that the inputs to AI are not uh, are not breaching any sort of privilege as far as sensitive data that's being plugged into these uh, these ChatGPT uh, search protocols. Vic and Ruben, what are your thoughts? Uh, a comment and a question uh, regarding using AI. A little funny known fact for some of the uh, dinosaurs in the room um, when Google started coming up the ranks in the mid 2000s all of a sudden they saw the brilliant capacity of the of the website to to catalog uh, horseshit and so it was speculated I was actually at an investment conference in uh, Vegas hosted by Goldman Sachs where uh, I think David Drummond and Eric Schmidt I think um, threw out the notion that Google could be used 
to by by uh, law enforcement agencies and and agencies like the IRS to start cataloging um, kind of surveillance on on taxpayers. So that was kind of early AI in that you know they were using the Google search index to to kind of um, help them just catalog their own files and and use you know that to you know weaponize the agents to go after people. Uh, follow up though, what where are they now? Kind of situation. What happened to DAOs? Are DAOs dead or are DAOs alive or are DAOs, where are DAOs if, if anyone can just update? Yeah, no, I think DAOs are still something that people are experimenting with and trying to figure out. I think the problem is that the dream of them being wholly decentralized um, is a bit, a bit difficult to execute because of the liability components. So I think we're going to see DAOs start to get structured more in the form of corporate governance models in order to insulate and protect people who are on the councils from the votes that they make and the actions that they take, because we're learning from what little litigation we've seen in the DAO space so far, that people who are in DAOs are certainly vulnerable to being ensnared in litigation uh, and being served. Ben, you clapped for that. I'm glad to see you in the space again, Ben. It's been a long time. Happy to see you. We always love when we can get some Web3 lawyers in the house to throw some ideas around. I'm going to probably shorten today's show a little bit, but I do want to hear from you real quick, Ben, before we take, uh, we take a pause for today. I've got to go to court today as fate would have it, but Ben, check in with us. Let us know what's going on. How are you? I'm adding you as a speaker. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, welcome. thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, sorry. I'm sitting in my office. I'm still the, the, the summer student or the, the law student, so I can't be on for too long. But uh, I, I clapped at that because I, I think very much, and I've said this for a long time, that, um, you know, the, this whole utopian idea of decentralization um, is, is a fallacy to a certain extent. Yes, we can have decentralization, but decentralization without some sort of centralization is really just utopian. Um, and especially when it comes to regulatory frameworks uh, for mass adoption to happen and for us you know, and I say us, I mean, those who aren't playing in the space already to feel comfortable to play in the space um, and to start, you know, leveraging the, these technologies that are available to us. Uh, we do need centralized frameworks to a certain extent and up to a certain extent. So uh, I appreciate I'm going to stay quiet for the rest of the time just to listen, just because I can't uh, can't be chatting for too long. But uh, I appreciate uh, every week that you put this together and I look forward to continuing to listen and learn from uh, all of you. Yeah, thank you so much. And as you know, you can always catch up with us on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts for back episodes. Um, Ruben, I'm going to close it out shortly, but any thoughts before we end the space for today? Car Carlo, can I just interject something? What could be more important in a court of law than you hosting a space? I mean, come on. Can you can you get a, an extension or something and just stay on for like 25 more hours and we can turn this into an uninformed opinion show? Unfortunately, no, I can't. We need levity in this world. We need levity and there's nobody that brings it harder than me. Thank you for hosting, Carlo. You got it, man. Have a good one. Ruben, let you have the last word before we shut it down for today. Thank you. Hmm. A good last word is always unenforceable terms or material. But uh, next time, well, at some point, I'd be curious to explore this idea of the failings Well, the I guess the relative failings of Pacer in terms of individual access and being able to crawl it and be able to digest it and like turn it into something that machines can actually look at um, so that people can like abstract away complexities and find correlation, you know, in, in, in pursuit of greater relative access and awareness for individuals. I think it would be crazy if blockchain ended up solving for those kinds of things. Um, if somebody just sort of basically shoved the federal docket system up on a, an immutable ledger. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'd, I'd be super curious to see what the second and third order effects of that might look like for better and worse, because it's going to be both. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't see a lot of conversations around how these, how immutable ledger might be applied to um, procedural stuff or sort of, you know, access to justice items. Um, uh, most of what I see is sort of reactively um, centered around the fintech stuff, which is fine, but just uh, eh, seems seems like it's fertile soil for you know 
more substantive stuff for law. That's all. Yeah. I think uh, definitely a conversation to be had for sure. It's going to probably come slow, Ruben, because I think before the government jumps in and puts court documents on a blockchain, uh, they're going to want to see the technology uh, time tested to their comfort level. So I, uh, I think it'd be an interesting thing. And I think it would certainly protect these documents in a way that uh, traditional servers can't. But who knows if they go that far with it, especially... Uh, concerning the the front-facing nature of these documents. I think they're going to always want to have some kind of a gatekeeper component as far as accessing these records and be able to verify who the users are that are looking at these documents uh, by way of, I mean, a subscription account. So uh, interesting. I, I, I don't think there's any way they can prevent that from happening, right? Like if yeah. WikiLeaks can exist, well, okay, we're, we're, we're delving into the specifics here. So and I know you have to wrap up, but uh, perhaps at another time it'd be... Uh, with, yeah, perhaps another time, but uh, yeah, interesting conversation for, for sure. For sure, for sure. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Thank you, E-Rich, for coming up to be my quasi-co-host today. I appreciate it, and uh, you all have a wonderful day. And uh, to all those in New York, I hope you're having a great time and can't wait to see pictures. Thanks, all. <laughs>